Do you want to harmonize with me on my hello? Sure. Count like, it in. Like, oh, three. Like, Do I really have to count it in? Are we singing or are we saying Yeah, just hello? be like, hello. 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 No, you're. Hello. 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 And scene. <laughs> Welcome to Matt to the Stars. My name is Jeremy. I'm Michelle. And this is the podcast that looks to the stars abroad in Hollywood and above in the night sky. As your filmy chartographers, <clears throat> we dive deep into the astrological charts and filmy works of many diverse talents. On this episode, we end with an ellipses, ellipsis, uh, to be continued, the musical Trio, trilogy that we've been working on, kind of. Uh, totally, totally intentionally. We didn't just pick at <laughs> random. Uh, we did Bjork in December. We did Bowie last month. You bet. We're looking at Bowie again a little, uh, a little in, bit. A, in a lot and a little bit in a big way. And uh, on this episode, of course, that you collect on with your fingies or however you listen to us, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, or Apple Music. Po- uh, well, We're thinking about the Spotify uh, streaming wars right now. That's why. I know. Um, Hope you're not listening to this on Spotify. We're taking a look at... But also sponsor us, Anchor. (laughs) Just kidding. Anchor? We're we're on Buzzsprout. Yeah. We're on Buzzsprout. Okay, retract. Ryuchi Sakamoto. Ba-bang. This episode. The uh, composer first, actor second, musician first... Uh, otherwise known as a perfect human being. Totally. (laughs) I think someone I... I, Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um... We're Someone, both kind of obsessed with him now. Well, just just really aligning, uh, you know, anti-nuclear activist, uh, very climate conscious person, includes it in their work. The exact same as Bjork, uh, really yeah. looks to their um, their home and global and, and, and kind of thinks of how um, their work can speak to nature and environment and the uh, relationship between um industrialization specifically with Sakamoto but also just sort of like human versus nature and I mean human nature is the first Bjork song uh (laughs) right and then Sakamoto uh really looks at that specifically with his last work too so yeah uh the filmy works we're gonna look at with Sakamoto um he's a composer he contributes as a composer and an actor uh his credits include on this episode and beyond uh, Nagisa Oshima's 1983 film, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which he stars in. He's one of the uh, main characters, and he composes the score score, uh, solely. And Mm -hmm. uh, Bernardo Bertolucci's Oscar-winning, Best Picture-winning, wins maybe nine Oscars, Little Gold Men that year, 1987's The Last Emperor. He plays a little part in, but he's, like, huge in the plot. But an important, yeah, yeah, absolutely. um, He's really the... the, uh, a sponsorous anchor mm-hmm. <laughs> of that <laughs> yep. and the catalyst for the change. And um, yeah, he's, he's, awesome. he's got an interesting part in it. And yeah. uh, we both, we liked both of these movies. Uh, we probably should have promoted before what movies we we're going to look at, but uh, I feel like you they're could both available on guess, cri- They're both available on, ooh, let's talk about sponsorous. They're both available on the Criterion channel right now to stream. <laughs> so get your seven or 30 day trial or whatever. Um, yeah, and then beyond that, beyond uh, just our podcast, he is known for Yellow Magic Orchestra Frame, uh, wor- working with Harumi Asono, and um, and and those two are just legends in their own right in their own solo work uh, throughout the seventies and eighties uh, in the Japan uh, pop, city pop, um, electro funk scene. 
totally. synthesizer of music and everything like else. Um, he's worked on The Revenant. He's worked on uh, his own little trilogy with Bertolucci past that. So um, his career spans very wide. Uh, and he's still working. He's still working. He's um, currently in a battle with like a relapse of, of cancer right now. So we send our thoughts to Sakamoto. And um, yeah, just, just uh, yeah. So we were learning about all of this when we were watching his documentary. Oh, also is uh, Coda, which, we'll which uh, features him. And it's all about him. And, and we'll look at that as well. So um, anyone out there who's listening, we hope you're doing okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hanging in there. We almost didn't record this on time, but we're back, baby. Oh, All we're right? not gonna slip again. Not twice in a row. I slipped on my way here to the table. Classic. I tripped over my <laughs> of foot. He did. Stubbed my toe. It's a I bad omen. Okay. Note the last emperor. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> um. Yeah. All right. All righty. We could dive in. Do you have any other thoughts? Just pumped. <laughs> you can tell the energy is ready to rock. Uh, levels are okay. We're not blowing anything out. Uh, all right, let's cue a transition. Whenever you're good to go, you oh, want to read the bio? You can sure. read the bio, yeah. All righty. Sakamoto was born on January. Ryuchi. Ryuchi Sakamoto. Sakamoto. Oh, skipped his first name. We're just you know, so we're comfortable with them. We're so obsessed with them. Yeah, it's we are. like, yeah, of course, we're, we're like on a football we're team. We're tight with them. We go, way, we go way back. <laughs> so we just passed. We his, go way uh, back a moto. That's actually a good one. Worth the interruption. Uh, we just <laughs> celebrated, uh, you know, two, about two weeks back his 70th birthday. So that's yes. incredible. He was born on January 17th, 1952 in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, his luminaries were placed firmly into earth signs. Earth will be a big theme we talk about on the episode today. Uh, his sun is in Capricorn and his moon is in Virgo. Sakamoto's chart emphasizes the signs of Capricorn and Libra, respectively. Jeremy knows all about that as a Capricorn Libra man. Uh, <laughs> Worth the interruption. <laughs> Worth the interruption. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so when he was born, uh, the sun, Mercury, and Chiron were all in Capricorn, while Mars, Saturn, and Neptune were in Libra, giving him a Libra stellium. I see Capricorn as emphasizing Sakamoto's like structured and somewhat traditional approach to his craft, his background in classical music, uh, which I feel like you'll touch on in a bit, but maybe I'm spoiling. Yeah. Yeah. Studies music uh, in university. Ethnomusicology. Uh, yeah. To yeah. be specific. Yeah. Which is all about um, bridging nature and music and technology as well. But also like world cultures yeah. uh, surrounding music. Yeah. Um, so... That Capricornian um, element kind of, you know, informs his approach to his craft with that background in classical music and initial pursuit of a formal education in ethnomusicology. Uh, in contrast, Libra signifies like his deeply artistic worldview and creative endeavors, uh, which helps to greatly expand the formal elements in his music and philosophies. Yeah, more of the sort of like far-reaching element. I know that's not Absolutely. Sagittarius. I know that because we've dropped it so many times. But it's we'll the sort get of, into like, that for Well, sure. sort of, but it... That is a more far-reaching and sort of the um, the grasp of creativity uh, knows no bounds. Um, but that sort of informs more of his experimentation and avant-garde-ness to his music because he's very much a vanguard in that way, as we'll say. So. And very much relevant on this point, uh, which I was going to say in a bit, but I'll say it right now. Venus is in Sagittarius in his chart. So again, Venus uh, informing that creative side uh, to his work with that Sagittarian, like, far-reaching 
uh, philosophical, world-oriented approach. If you take a look at Sakamoto's chart, you'll notice that almost all of the planets are loosely forming like the shape of a cross, uh, which I think is pretty cool. So first we have a cluster of planets in Libra, which I just mentioned. 90 degrees away from that is Capricorn, which like I said, houses the sun and Mercury and Chiron. Another 90 degrees away is Aries, which houses Jupiter. And then another 90 degrees, a uh, little math here, is uh, Cancer, which um, what is in Cancer? I believe it's Uranus because I wrote it wrong in the document. But anyway, so it's like four points on his chart, which are kind of housing all of these planets, which kind of sets up a nice cross shape. So these placements set up like a few natural like hard aspects, namely these squares, oppositions, and conjunctions, which again, we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, we'll be specifically exploring the presence of a lot of like opposites, tensions, binaries uh, in our discussion on Sakamoto's work. So these planetary placements tee that up quite nicely. So beyond that cross, like I mentioned, Venus is in Sagittarius, another important placement in relation to Sakamoto's career as an artist. Uh, Pluto is in Leo, and then the nodes are in Pisces and Virgo. Earth is the dominant element. Cardinal is the dominant quality, both very relevant, I think, to Sakamoto's work and, as we've seen in Coda, his personality as well. Uh, and Sakamoto's placements represent a good balance between male and female signs. As Sakamoto's birth time is unknown, another one will only address the placements of his Too planets bad. and the aspects between them. I know. I feel, <laughs> he's one that I didn't expect to have a birth time for, so I wasn't really surprised. Do you think... I know there's no, there's a little to no literature about his astrology. Really yeah, on the for web. artists like this, honestly, on <laughs> on the internet, like there's a lot about Bowie as just such a international icon. Well, my um, well, my question, I guess, is not to cut you off. No, I feel like Bowie maybe has dipped into his astrology, whereas Sakamoto. Do you think Sakamoto has dipped in at all? That's a good question. I think watching Coda, like his the way he thinks about nature and approaches nature, I wouldn't be surprised if he saw some significance in the cosmos. So if he has, yeah, yeah like, you know, again, it's that like connectedness with nature and the earth um, mm -hmm. and by extension, the cosmos, which are part of our greater universe. So I wouldn't be surprised if he has. Bjork obviously spoke openly about it and had a lot of those similar like- Early um, earthly interviews, yeah. Polls. So yeah, with Sakamoto, I wouldn't be surprised. But as far as we know- he hasn't talked about it, so. Enjoy cock. <laughs> what? Her shirt. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, like I was just surprised to find out like Paul McCartney talking about his sign a little Ooh, bit in his book. Yep. So it's out there. But Sakamoto, I think, is just like. I mean, just briefly share all the, uh, the Georgie and the Wawa, right? I know. We should do a wah, Beatles special wah. here. We're getting off track. Let's get back to Sakamoto. Get back. More like get back a moto. Oh, Get back goodness. to back a moto. But. Speaking of Bakamoto, part of my script now, a highly influential vanguard. He is an electronic and synthesizer music. Sakamoto initially came to international renown in 1978 with Yellow Magic Orchestra. Yellow. First hired as a session musician on Harumi Asono's fourth album, Pareso. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. The duo, along with percussionist Yukihiro Takahashi, Sorry for all the pronunciations in this one, I'm sorry. Uh, went on to form uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra after originally playing under the Yellow Magic Band moniker for these sessions. Arriving as both a solo artist and one-third of the legendary trio within the same year, Sakamoto released his debut Thousand Knives exactly a month before, I believe it's October 25th, um, 
1978, exactly a month before Orchestra's first self-titled album with Hosono and Takahashi lending additional instrumentation and fashion coordination to Knives, respectively. Uh, fashion coordination for, like, the cover photo where he's in the tub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking, Iconic. Looking Iconic. Despite finding mainstream success as a pop artist, it's worth noting that Sakamoto actually began his journey as a classically trained musician, uh, which Michelle alluded to. In 1970, he enrolled at the Tokyo National University of Fine Arts and Music, where he studied music composition and ethnomusicology, as we said. As we also said, aforementioned, with his Venus in Sagittarius, it's no surprise that throughout his career, he maintained both an interest in and the integration of a vast spectrum of musical traditions. You bet. With orchestra... His soundcraft utilized the newest advancements in synthesizer and electronic music, like a sequencer or a sampler, for instance, uh, whereas his later solo outings clearly emphasized the classical musical influences from before his university studies or part of his, um, the, you know, the bedrock for his, um, his love of music. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Debussy, Bach. He loves both. Bach, my yeah. goodness. Bachamoto. I'll keep going. I'll keep going. As one of the earliest examples of synth pop, the trio, uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra, of course, pioneered sounds and stylings later found in electro, techno, and hip hop, which obviously dominated Western music culture throughout the 80s. With their initial run lasting a mere five years up until 1983, Sakamoto, Hosono, and Takahashi molded the defining features of electronic music as we know it today still. Uh, Significantly, Hosono claims orchestra was originally conceived as a parody to probe Western ideologies surrounding the East or the Orient by way of image and sound, which one can begin to investigate with the terribly unsubtle band name invoking widely held stereotypes towards skin color, yellow, and an ethno-regional intuition for the cult, magic. Just think of... um, What's uh, John Carpenter's movie? Which one? Big Trouble in Little China. Oh. It's just yellow magic. <laughs> definitely, right? Definitely playing into that. Uh, a lot of those stereotypes. And they're doing, uh, doing it willingly and doing it with, uh, you know, coyingly as well. With that in mind, Orchestra acts as one of many Sakamoto projects that playfully and intelligently tease the tension and confluence between East and West. Uh, which is another thing that we're going to keep saying. We're going to talk again. about a little bit. So this sure. this brings us to Nagisa Oshima's, and I'm sorry again for any pronunciation, World War II prisoner of war camp drama, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Sakamoto's first appearance in film as both an actor and a composer. Uh, a funny anecdote from the, I think both from Coda and in the special features of the Criterion for uh, Lawrence. He said that, uh, you know, Oshima wanted him... Um, in this part, and uh, Sakamoto said, you know, in hindsight, it was so brash and arrogant, but he was like, only if I can compose it, too, because he really wanted to work in film. He loved Oshima. Oshima's um, seen as a bit of the Japanese Godard of his time. Yeah. Um, do you know that movie that I couldn't finish called In the Realm of the Senses, where, like, they no. actually, like, <laughs> do it? Like, no. they actually are doing it? No. He makes that movie less than 10 years before this one. That's in like 76. Very controversial. One of his like, and because of that controversy, one of his most uh, well-watched movies Mm. um, or well-known movies. So that's that's one. Um, And he has another one. But anyway, um, yeah, a bit of a Japanese Godard making films from the 50s and 60s and onward. So this is later in his career, but it's definitely a celebrated one and definitely such a high-profile weird alchemy of like getting a, getting two pop stars, Bowie, you know, mega icon uh, a few years before Labyrinth, right? But what's interesting is that he looks 
Like, he looks 10 years younger in this than he does Bowie Labyrinth. Bowie does? Yeah. Labyrinth, lo- he looks like he's... Old. He's, well, <laughs> ah, yeah. Well, okay. I, which I know is part of it, but it was, it was striking. It was the tight pants. It was the, like, long johns. Yeah, but he looks What's, good in this. He looks so good. He's not like he's wearing not tight pants in this. What I think is really adorable about Sakamoto as well, and this is, um like, an interview from Fact Mag where he's just talking about his experience on the movie, and you're saying he wouldn't be in it unless he did the score. He also did not, like, he wanted to talk to Bowie about the music he was doing. Yeah. But in true Capricornian fashion, like, he didn't ever broach the subject because he's like, oh, David's too busy on, like, focusing on Mm. acting. So he, like, never talked to, like, these two pop icons. Like, they never (laughs) just threw around musical ideas because Sakamoto was just, like, too in his own head about it. Yeah, and... um when you look the two up, you can see that Sekimoto, after Bowie's um, yeah. death, talks about one of his, uh, you know, greatest regrets is not really reconnecting or even connecting. So, you know, reconnecting with Bowie uh, in general. So um, Yeah, he said he's like, we both lived in New York. I just always thought I'd run into him. Okay, getting sad. <laughs> Let's get back um, to the movie. <laughs> so starring as the no-nonsense Cap Commander, Captain Yanoi, Sakamoto shares the screen alongside a notable cast, as we've been talking about. Tom Conti is the titular John Lawrence. Iconic. Uh, Tom Conti, by the way, is, um, is uh, I believe, who's um, <laughs> Ross's wife in Britain? Because I think Tom Conti Emma? plays. Uh, oh, Emily. Emily. Emily, sorry. I think he's Emily's father. Whoa. So, hold up. Who's this? Can you say this just like based on the photo? Oh, yeah. Those are. Wait, hold on. What? I think. Is that her father? Isn't. Oh, okay. Hold on. That's Tom Conti, who plays the titular John Lawrence. Yeah, he is Emily's dad. Sick. Whoa. That's that's. One that you know that you pull that out of <laughs> your right. bum bum. Ever. <laughs> you didn't even finish it. <laughs> out of your bum bum. Titular. Looks good. John. Tom Conti's in this. <laughs> for frig sakes. David Bowie, of course. Jack Strafer. Selliers. Selliers. And indefatigable film god Takeshi Kitano. Oh, the Which go. you were learning as Sergeant Hara. Language, customs, dress, and beliefs on death, honor, and sacrifice are but a handful among countless other cultural impasses that cost the lives and souls of many soldiers on both sides of the war in Oshima's depiction of Japan-occupied Java. Um, Yeah, we can – why don't we riff and I'll get into the filmy aspects because then we're basically heading on to the astro part. Love it. How did we like this one? I it's it's grown it. yeah. it's grown in um like I want to watch it again honestly yeah. like I would just watch it on a yearly basis or something it it really grew on me I guess thinking about it more the cast helps a lot where you're just like it elevates boom, the material boom, boom though it's a good like, screen a uh, good screenplay Takahashi I haven't seen um Takeshi sorry I'm thinking of <laughs> Bakamoto uh, yeah Takeshi I know you set up as like. A legend in his own right. I haven't seen anything. Um, I don't think other than this, but he's just such a like, one of the a most presence. biggest crossovers would be you know Battle Royale, sure. um, and he's in that. He's the main teacher guy. But yeah, liked it a lot. The end, like almost, I haven't like teared up in a movie in a very long time. But the end almost had me going. Um, and then the score comes in, like the theme, and you're just like, yeah, it's good. Great score. Go- yeah. Sakamoto's first film performance, 
Uh, it's really, I don't know if it's heavy handed, but the score is incredible. And uh, for a long time, again, sort of in the special features and maybe in Coda as well, you know, he talks about uh, refusing to kind of play it. It was his creep by Radiohead. Yeah. He like didn't really want to play it for a long time. He kind of resented it. He definitely resented it. Um, and this is the main uh, theme itself but uh now he plays it and he loves it and and and, because it's good though it's great um just as a yeah i believe so so uh paul mayersberg who uh adapted um the man who fell to earth Mm -hmm. um uh, adapted uh this screenplay from another book as well nice um so we have a dual script so so bowie and mayersberg um, are both kind of crossover. transferring over from last episode into this one. So they also, um, he adapted the book for, for this. But yeah, I like it a lot, you know, thinking yeah. about it more and more. It's it's deep, it's layered. I like, yeah, the only parts that don't work for me is the Bowie's past. I think it's like, it's just the oh, tone. Yeah. I, like, I don't really. Yeah, the, the brother thing was something we were trying to figure out. And I think yeah. you came to a conclusion on like the intention of having the, the brother not age at all. Um, yeah, that didn't make any sense to me. Where it's like Bowie was like a child. like twelve, and then well, Bowie was like new... forty. Okay, <laughs> and the, his brother was the same age. Bowie's, um, Bowie's played by a kid. Yeah, in their first interaction or whenever he's like, singing, you know, him and Lawrence, him and Lawrence are in are in are in prison in prison. <laughs> They're in like solitary confinement basically uh, because of some. This is before the escape attempt. I can't really get the. Um... This was after the escape attempt. That's why they're in there. Because then after they get taken out, and, and uh, yes, Hara you're right. Like, yes, you're right. I'm drunk. <laughs> you're well, no, no, no. That no, no, no. Because um, they go to the temple, and then um, Sakamoto goes. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And, and Lawrence is trying to figure it out. So it's like, wait a minute. You don't care who actually did the crime. You're just doing it to preserve your sense of order. He goes, yes. <laughs> All right, we're just trying <laughs> to know. work out the sequence of events. Anyway, but, <laughs> but, but during this, the, the one part that doesn't work for us, because everything else really does, it's great. It's shot well. There's really interesting cinematography. Mm-hmm. You can feel the heat of it. It's a sweaty movie. They're not afraid to sweat in this movie. Anyway, I love it. <laughs> it's good. It's yep. really good. I don't think we've uh, connected with the movie so much um, since, since Malik. I didn't really connect with Last Man Juniper Tree was its own the little last, thing. The man who fell to earth, you mean? We're watching The Last Man on Earth right no, now. No, sorry. I really honestly meant the... Uh, <laughs> the um, last Emperor. No. Oh, no, no. I guess I meant the Bowie one. No, I mean, I meant the Malick movies. You know, we were really connecting with those. Uh, obviously connected with the Bowie. Uh, but so not it's been a couple episodes. man who fell to earth. Got it. Yeah. Not All the right. last man who fell not to earth. Not the last man who fell to earth. Um, anyway. Okay. So I'm going to dig into some of the uh, filmy stuff. Uh, for this one, and then we're going to bounce to the astrology, and then uh, just to give everyone spoilers alert, uh, then we'll just riff on Last Emperor for a bit. We couldn't really find as much well, to we do didn't. with Well, we didn't. We wrote our script before watching The Last Emperor. All right. Well, that's... <laughs> and then we're like, we'll just talk about Merry Christmas. Last Emperor was great. We'll talk about it. But the conversation will focus on... Um, Merry Christmas. As we're learning, Lawrence. as we're learning with these, it always just makes more sense to focus on a single movie and a single Way individual. Um, but uh, but in the end, we gather so much more context, and I think we're so filled in the brain and the dome with mm-hmm. 
the the talent that you know this this episode Sakamoto's that we get to know them that much better. So well, anyway, crack open your dome, get into it. <laughs> um. All right. So so back to Mr. Lawrence. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Which is it's a Christmas film. It takes place around Christmas. They're singing Christmas songs for sure. Yeah. And then and the score itself. Um. Sakamoto wanted to incorporate um, bells, bells, mm-hmm. uh, but he wanted to spin it so it's not to do with like church bells, which is more oriented around Christmas uh, and church bells. He wanted to bring in this different instrument that's not really actually like sort of um, you know South Asia, okay. but it's not, and it's sort of like he's like sampling a certain instrument. Cool. Um, maybe I should have written this down. This is it's why we fine. write out the and script it, but. He's sort of incorporating that East and West thing in the score itself. Totally. That's just important to talk about for Mr. Lawrence because that was like such a deliberate um, yeah. decision. And it uh, relates directly to the themes in the movies as we're going to talk about as well and uh, and the form itself. So um, so so it, it's kind of a Christmas it's, score. Yeah, yeah. Like, absolutely. You know, play this when you're opening presents this year, all right? <laughs> no matter what you celebrate. <laughs> Holiday music. All right, so despite the East versus West conflict inherent to the film's thematic and historical context, we witness a friendship blossom between Hara and Lawrence as avatars for the unlikely bonds forged between enemy and ally during wartime. Hara and Lawrence's connection are an immediate emotional throughline one can follow up to the film's sentimental but tragic finality. Tearjerker. Finality. Had me going. Finale. Fatality. <laughs> Tearjerker. Is that Oh, that's what yeah. you're saying. It was Takeshi's. Oh, when he's like Christmas. I thought you I was meant, like the yeah. <laughs> It's good. You get a real extreme close up on know. that too. So the two men routinely discuss uh, opposing cultural norms throughout the film concerning honor and death as Hara insists he would commit seppuku meaning cutting the belly, a Japanese suicide ritual historically performed by samurais uh, to preserve honor for themselves and their family if he were caught by British forces, uh, or, or more bluntly in Lawrence's position as a prisoner of war. So on the other side, right? Um, as the generally accepted form of punishment for wrongdoings that range wildly in severity, uh, there's a culture shock for both the diegetic Western characters and the Western world viewer, a.k.a. Uh, AKA us, uh, when seppuku is frequently performed throughout the film. By contrast, Lawrence abates the severity of imprisonment and admits to Hara that for the West, falling into enemy hands isn't shameful or dishonorable necessarily, but rather another chance at life. Hara refuses this notion and proclaims Lawrence is merely afraid to die and can't accept finality, unlike himself. However, during a post-war period at the film's end, Hara, now a prisoner of the Allies, is visited on by Lawrence the night before his scheduled execution. Much is revealed during this coda, but the most telling lies in Hara's confusion with his death sentence, given that his actions were no worse than many of his fellow ranking officers. Though not a complete admission of fear of death, Hara, who throughout his time at the Java camp dismissed death and dying, finally seems mournful when thinking of his impending end. More than sharing a common understanding of the film's thematic priorities surrounding death and dying, Hara and Lawrence become linked visually by the cinematography. During this sequence, an offset high angle akin to a Dutch tilt but more so emphasizing the negative space circling a specific character's confines swallows up Hara as he awaits his certain doom. Overall, this shot reoccurs three times throughout the film, all during moments of anticipating death. The first two, Sellier's waiting in the courtroom to learn of his punishment very early on in the film before he actually reaches the camp, and Lawrence in shock at the temple, 
uh, as we were talking about, when he's wrongfully accused and sentenced to death for smuggling a radio inside the camp. These two sequences bridge the two Englishmen as bodies askew in a foreign land, confounded and oppressed by the Japanese army's severe adherence to order and command. On one hand, the men are connected by having their fate decided on by a third party. On the other, we witness a spectrum of opposing reactions and emotions as Selliers, the calm stoic, and Lawrence defiantly refusing to be held down in more ways than one. Hara falls somewhere in the middle. Confused by a punishment he deems too severe, like Lawrence before him, he remains quiet in reflection and remorse. A clarity is reached by three men framed in isolation, wraiths oppressed by the specter of death looming overhead. Thus, Toichiro Narushima's, again, I'm sorry for any pronunciation, deliberate, deliberate cinematography emphasizes the spiritual and physical divide between East and West as Selliers, Lawrence, and Hara all sit or kneel misaligned to their immediate confines. Literally, the rule of thirds and the rule of law are framed at an odd angle from the subject of interest, you know, these three men, juxtaposing each individual soldier's inherited view on death and justice with their fatalistic surroundings. Do we want to take a break and go to the astrology? Yeah, do you think this is a good point for a little breaky poo? And then we can go, (laughs) a little breaky poo, a little nappy poo for me. So picking up just uh, kind of on what Jeremy was already talking about. So East and West. The yeah. cultural divide between East and West is but one example of a number of dichotomies presented in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. However, a division such as this is never without exceptions. Moving beyond the characters themselves, which Jeremy discussed, Sakamoto's interest in culturally diverse musical traditions proves how easily these boundaries can be obscured. In a GQ interview from 2018, he says... I don't like the expression of East and West, but there is some kind of a priority still between them. I used to get questions like, so what's going on with Japanese music? Or you're doing Japanese music, right? No, I'm not. I'm not involved with Japanese pop music right now. Each time I do get kind of furious, emotional with it. Furious emotion. I'm not the ambassador of Japan's culture or Japan. That's such a hard sentence. Like in the end, like, yeah. I know. Right? Yeah. I I get it. Yeah, I think it's... I'm not representing an entire country. I know. For for that to be kind of how you're framed, especially in Western culture, that's kind of your signature. I'm sure that would get frustrating. he's been working in Hollywood outside of it for so long. And he's lived in New York for a long time. He's working on yeah. Right. Sakamoto has spoken about Claude Debussy's influence on traditional Japanese music and in turn Debussy's influence on his own work. Uh, Critics have claimed the use of synthesizers, computers, and modulation as something from the Western musical tradition, whereas melodically, Sakamoto's work seems to carry a more Eastern quality. However, it should never be considered as one without the others. Sakamoto's genius lies in incorporating many musical influences, styles, and traditions within his work that make his work sound very often universal and ambiguous, yet enduring. Uh, Cue Venus and Sagittarius, as we talked about. So I was on track. Bringing up Sag Sag in the beginning, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So Venus as signifying like love, art, creative endeavors, and Sagittarius as promoting travel, freedom, and new perspectives. Sakamoto's status as a musician, trailblazer, and innovator is no surprise considering the heavy cardinal emphasis in his chart and given that his son is opposing Uranus. In short, Sakamoto's work does not consist of quote-unquote Western instrumentation and quote-unquote Eastern melodies, as the fusion of these influences renders the stark distinctions invalid. And you can find that on the Mr. Lawrence soundtrack. Something sounds just a bit, well, yeah, you can't 
put a pin on it and say like, oh, that's an Eastern blend of something like that. Absolutely. It does. It sounds a bit askew. And that was his whole purpose, too. He was like the whole incorporation of it, sampling something that's neither from the West nor the East. Like, you know. Yeah. Because there is, why divide it? There's no divisions, you know, blurs constantly. Well, and especially when you're at a point where you've worked in Hollywood for as long, so you're informed by these different experiences. It's not Hollywood, but he's living in New York for so long, right? He's working on his own solo music. I guess what I mean is Hollywood films, but. Yeah. The Revenant, yeah, yeah. I guess if he's working on, yeah, of course. With his sun in Capricorn, square Neptune in Libra, and Mercury in Capricorn, square Jupiter in Aries, just two examples of some placements in his chart, the feeling of ambiguity present in Sakamoto's work sometimes leads to discomfort prompted by those hard aspects. Keeping this in mind during our viewing of Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, I think we were both thinking that Sakamoto's score doesn't like totally fit within the tone and subject matter. uh, Not in a bad way, but no, it was just, it like stuck out a little bit. It was like on top of everything rather than like within it. Well, did did you go back and watch the special features for? Uh, the criterion because he talks about how film has its own rhythm yeah and, uh, as opposed to music and so mr lawrence he always felt like and rarely um you know again being a humble <laughs> self-conscious i don't know how yeah. but self-conscious kind of guy right because he's Capricorn. really the perfect human being yeah. he talks about that one and sometimes he feels like he pastes music on top of yeah, the scene and that's what it felt like and he says with that one it felt a little bit like that um and that's why it's almost like the again this the the title track itself actually is more successful than maybe the film itself. That totally. maybe has a bit more of an enduring quality to it. Absolutely. Um, but then when you watch the film, you can't really separate the two. I think he does yeah. a good job. He does a great <laughs> you job. Know, you know, so anyway. And to kind of emphasize that point between like Western and Eastern influences, there's an article from Netherlands News Live uh, recently posted. <laughs> Incredible source. Called, I know, it's just like on a Google, but I think it was about... If summation. I'm not mistaken, it might have been about Coda or okay. like a performance he was supposed to do in the Netherlands but couldn't. Yeah. Anyway, the article is called Composer Ryuji Sakamoto Embraces the Cultural Confusion. Thank you. Thank you. NNL. <laughs> NNL. So the planetary bodies in Libra, Mars, Saturn, and Neptune certainly don't seem to create the most harmonious relationship. And as Libra is ruled by Venus, this theme of disharmony may show up in Sakamoto's creative endeavors, as we just said. We have both malefic planets, so Mars and Saturn. They're the most, quote-unquote, harmful planets, or the planets with the greatest ability to do harm, uh, both with quite opposing qualities. So Mars's powerful drive and aggression versus Saturn's more tempered rigidity and structure. However, these opposing qualities speak again to the varied and all-encompassing nature of Sakamoto's work, from traditional scores to electronic experimentation. Neptune introduces a feeling of otherworldliness. Remember that Neptune is all about community and the collective. It's all encompassing, uh, speaking also to our experience of the score within the film as something that's in unfamiliar territory. And to pull on some of Richard Tarnas's work, I think what's important about Neptune in this relationship is that Neptune wants to bring things together. It doesn't like separation. It likes to kind of create something whole. Further, nice. Neptune also promotes a lot of confusion and disillusionment. So there you go. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll wrap up really quickly, but moving back to the film, just as Sakamoto has obscured cultural boundaries, Oshima has done the same through his depiction of the East versus the West. As Jeremy discussed, we see a clear division between the Japanese and British soldiers, exemplified through their appearance, posture, and behavior, for example. I'm actually not sure if you got to that part in your script yet, or did you? Whatever. 
Maybe I'm spoiling. Oh yeah, you're right. You're bit. right. Yeah, we're bouncing uh, around a bit. Bouncing around, but as Jeremy will explain. As Jeremy will explain uh, much more eloquently. There's a division between Japanese and British through their appearance, posture, behavior. The Japanese soldiers are stiff and forced. The British are quite relaxed and natural. The Japanese are typically more well kept. Uh, and not just because they're not the prisoners of war, I know, but right? you know yeah. what I mean? But, but um, you know. It's yeah. still there. The British are, you know, unruly, dirty, but again, they are prisoner of war. Yeah, um, not getting baths anytime. I know. Hara and Lawrence's friendship, on the other hand, grows in the face of this divide, and you've already talked about that friendship, so I'm not spoiling that. <laughs> the only real friendship between the camps that we see is Hara and Lawrence. Hara is the one seen, quote-unquote, lounging more frequently where the rest of his peers are not, while Lawrence is the upright one in the relationship, the, the sturdy, the strong one. Yeah. Hara does not fit within the predetermined stereotype outlined above, while Lawrence is the confident, like, leader of his, his group. He's the voice that people look to. Lawrence being the leader of, like, the— The Brits. Uh, <laughs> the, the Brits uh, uh, and, and the, the prisoners of war. And the messenger right, yeah. between camps almost. Because he speaks Japanese. Exactly. Unlike the rest of so the allies. So he's the yeah. one kind of like, you know, filling this divide between 100%. East versus West. He's the glue. He's the glue. Merry Christmas from Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> so as Hara and Lawrence's relationship reconsiders the validity of Eastern versus Western representations, so does Sakamoto's work as a whole, specifically in this film. Sounds great. Meh. Sounds great. Thank you. Back um, to you. Yeah, we'll bounce back quick. All right, uh, back to some of the filmy elements for Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, so as we were discussing quite acutely, uh, just as the friendship between Hara and Lawrence strengthens in spite of the East versus West conflict, Yanoi, um, Sakamoto's character and Sellier's Bowie, so they are the central... Icons. ...relationship and the uh, on the Criterion set, and the climax of the film is Bowie coming over to give Sakamoto a little smooch on the cheek. They're the most beautiful people in the a film very, as well. This is about um, suppressed desires, uh, transgressions of, um, you know, stereotypical sexuality, especially in war between men, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Because we see it, um, two men engage in sex, have sex. Two, two men have sex in the beginning of the film, um, and we obviously don't see it, um, but it's learned about, and it's between the enemy and ally, I believe— yeah, the Dutch man and the Japanese man. Is he Japanese though? I might be mis. We sure. might be misremembering it because then they're talking about something where it's just like, well, he would know, and it might be because he's from another sort of like Southeast but Asia the, colony. But um, the occurrence is exactly as you said. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, but it's just between you know East versus West, whatever. Yeah, and yeah. It's, and then it's that. So that is really you know complicating things. So that that sets the stage for almost everything: the conflict, the tension, the confluence, you know, whatever, and then the whole idea that it's just like what i have a crush on bowie yeah <laughs> what am i gonna do yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um i'm gonna kill good, him. i'd I'm have gonna a crush on him. bowie in that movie too everyone looks good tom Cody's kind of cute kind of like you know just like a cute like your father's uh yeah, friend or absolutely. something you know what i mean yeah, yeah. you wouldn't really hook up but to guess she's just a cutie she it's like hang out with it's like how drink. you feel about like gregory peck for example where you're just like cute dad but Gregory Peck's pretty cute. Like <laughs> Tom Conti's got a bit of like more of a dad vibe. Yeah, it's because he speaks Japanese too, and you're like mm. culture, <laughs> culture. <laughs> Talk to me about Japan, Tom uh, Lords. Um, okay, so as I was talking about Yanoi, a uh, Captain Yanoi, Sakamoto, and Asellers, uh, who's Bowie, their relationship, um, the unrequited, you know, tension between them, 
uh, specifically on Yanoi's side, literally embodies the said conflict and confluence uh, with respect to their individual physicality and gait. Uh, it should be said that studying the performances of Sakamoto and Bowie likely compels the viewer to project far too much onto the two musicians. Bowie, an established superstar playing a charismatic, well-known manger, you know, you're made to like him and you do, versus Sakamoto, who's, you know, the villain in a lot of but ways. But you also still like him. Um, yeah, well, and that's and that's because of the performance. Like, uh, you know, a virtual unknown in the world of film is Captain Inouye, who's revered by his camp and prisoners, if only through his viciousness and unshakable allegiance. Their performance is relaxed and natural, stiff and forced, respectively. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily have to do with their on-screen tenures, uh, but more so the carefully calibrated acting and directing choices that delineate the film's thematic cultural divides. Uh, I think Sakamoto's really playing it heavy on it. Um, he's struggling through his English. I think he's far more comfortable speaking <laughs> Japanese, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But, um, um, Still is. <laughs> but yes, right? You know what I mean? Um mm-hmm. So, Chart of the Two's uh, physicality and spatial geography throughout the film helps untangle the curious, messy web held together by Yanoi's suppressed desire for Selliers. Unlike the other men in the camp, Yanoi and Selliers don't actually share any physical contact, which again is why I sort of alluded to the beginning conflict where two men have uh, had sex and... And with this, it's that suppressed desire. They're not touching at all. There's not a touch or a punch or anything. You know, a lot of the men are sort of struggling and fighting, being held back by others. Um, And this sort of stays true until the emotional climax as Selliers breaks rank and embraces Yunoi with a kiss on both cheeks in front of the entire camp. Before this, the closest the two come to exchanging a touch is during Selliers' attempted escape. Uh, as, again, we were kind of alluding to. Uh, he refuses to fight Yanoi, planting his sword in the sand after a waist-high shot frames a kneeling Selliers in submission to Yanoi, who holds his sword straight out from his crotch, es- essentially begging him to fight or rather touch him, I think. You know, the phallic use of Yanoi's sword telegraphs Selliers' opposition to initiating a fight as he smirks, stands, and silently refuses to grant Yanoi what he desperately desires, dramatically shifting the power dynamic at that moment. This is made especially clear after Yanoi steps in front of Hara's gun, with which he intends to shoot Selliers, and Lawrence whispers to Selliers, I think he's taken a bit of a shine to you. Following this track, Yanoi's simmering longing for Selliers' touch resolves in the third act's dramatic embrace as Selliers relinquishes his emotional control over Yanoi, marching a strikingly long distance in order to not only grant Yanoi's wish, but save his comrades to boot. The space between the two men crossed in the name of sacrifice, honor, and acceptance. Sellier's escape links two other interconnected scenes of suppressed desire, each one more revealing of Yanoi's feelings than the last. And again, his um, attempted escape is during the, you know, Yanoi brings out a sword, just, you know, trying to Visualize a film through words, which is always the worst way to talk about a film. <laughs> just watch it. So, <laughs> But also just watch it. Yeah, Sellier's Escape links the two other interconnected scenes of suppressed desire, each one more revealing than the last. All three take place at night, painted in exaggerated blue hues. The first highlights Yunoi's protection over Sellier's, visiting him in the ward. The last, an amendment to the climax's embrace, as Yunoi... Uh, cutting off a piece of Sellier's hair during his final living moments. Stuck in the sand, head out, head out of the sand. He dies standing up. Yeah. Which is something where Brutal. he's always like, you know, he's sort of bent over. Mm-hmm. He's sort of, you know, arched in that sort of way where Sakamoto like just is rigid and straight and I don't know. In a visual callback to 
the sword, Yanoi holds his knife straight out in front of him, finally able to make the only type of physical contact with another man that he'll allow himself with a secondary object held by gloved hands. Ironically, this moment is far more intimate than the public embrace, and it's, you know, initiated by Yanoi. Um, as Sakamoto's Yanoi spends a longer length of time holding a piece of cellular's in his hands with just the two present. With the first two scenes representing protection and desire, respectively, the haircut, this final scene, manifests obsession as the final piece of the emotional triptych, as you know I can no longer conceal the truth from himself. Sad ending all around. Ah! Takeshi's um, going to be executed. Uh, Bowie's, you know, sentenced to death, and, and Sakamoto... Loses his position. Well, and that's it. Regardless of his desire, regardless Mm -hmm. of his affection for Bowie, because of, uh, and it kind of harkens back to um, Lawrence freaking out in the temple, being like, you're just going to commit someone to death to preserve that sense of order. And that necessarily talks about what's happened in the film before that. Uh, But then it also foreshadows what happens to Bowie, that regardless of how he feels, regardless of everyone pretty much knowing, yeah. because now Bowie's kicked, kissing him on the cheeks, you know, it's not like he wants to have Bowie terminated. No. But he has to preserve that sense of order. So. Absolutely. Aww. War sucks. Yeah, I know. But you had commented on, like, what a good shot it is with, like, Sakamoto over top of Bowie's head, grabbing the hair. It's shot, yeah, it goes wide for a long time, and then it's in. It's shot really well. Yeah. It's shot really well. Um, Obviously, as we were talking about, yeah. Well, in the high angles that uh, we'll have a promo and we'll have a little bit of stuff that sort of like really represents what I mean by that. But it is just a great way to show isolation, negative space. Yeah. Anyway, I've talked for long enough. Let's talk about a little uh, nature and industrialization. Yeah, moving a little bit more to Coda, but also pulling it back to Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. So in the 2017 documentary about Sakamoto, Coda, which acts as both a mission statement for his album Async and a vivid portrait of an individual's brush with death and the subsequent fight against it, the musician shares his fascination with the inherent relationship between nature and industrialization, nature and man. Or human. Human. Nature I told and you. human. You gotta, yeah. <laughs> ah, okay, just cut that part out. No, no, no. Yeah, we're good. Okay. As a result of accumulating environmental disasters, including 2011's Fukushima, Sakamoto begins to reckon with his career as having directly benefited from the effects of industrialization. Rather, he couldn't have one without it. Very open about his use of computers and music, there's a cute scene uh, from his YMO days where he explains the benefits of making music with a computer. Namely, that notes can be played so much faster with a sequencer than the messy, imperfect human hand. He keeps going. <laughs> Speed it up. Faster, yeah, I faster. Love it. It's funny, yeah. At the same time, his connection with nature, again, thanks to his many earth placements in his chart, leads him to explore elements of music concrete in his newer work. Now, Jeremy, what is that? Because you taught me what this is. You just, um, so we see in Coda that he's uh, recording nature sounds. Yes. He's just going out into Getting the, the wild. He's wearing a bucket over his head to get that perfect rain bucket sound. And then he's incorporating it with music and more yeah. um, traditionally accepted forms of music as in instruments and notes. Yeah. Um, and that really blends into what you're just about to talk about. So I don't want to spoil that. But uh, <laughs> music concrete is just grabbing found sounds. Yeah. 
and bridging it with music. Which it's, he loves It's doing. just everywhere. Now, it's a bit more like there's Music Concrete incorporates railroad. So it's it could be like pretty noisy yeah. and loud and avant-garde, which is the point. Sure. Um, you're sort of bringing natural sounds back into that soundscape. Totally. And yeah. So, Adorable. Yeah. yeah, he uh, when he was recording this sound of like running water from a glacier – uh, he said it was the most beautiful sound <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Central Dakota and Sakamoto's async, he stages natural sounds against the artificial notes of a piano, made explicitly through the advancements of industrialization. On the piano, he says, we humans say the piano falls out of tune, but that's not exactly accurate. Matter is struggling to return to a natural state. And he talks about the wood because it's made out of so many different types of wood. Absolutely. And the wood's trying to go back to being wood and not Before a piano. Essentially, put it dumbly it by me. Yeah. the form it is in. Exactly. As music is itself a human creation, he admits, it's contradictory, but somehow I have to survive through that. With his North Node in Pisces and South Node in Virgo, we can view Sakamoto's ethical and artistic struggle to both surrender a need to remain grounded to the earth or nature and accept new technological advancements as the same struggle faced by our current climate-conscious society. I feel that. <laughs> What's more... Perfect human. Yeah. yeah. For an anti-nuclear activist, it's horribly cruel irony to be diagnosed twice with cancer and then suffer through radiation therapy. In Sakamoto's chart, nature versus industrialization certainly exists given the high concentration of Earth placements broken record. Sun and Mercury in Capricorn are representing a strong connectedness to earth and nature. Mercury signifies Sakamoto's representation and communication of quote-unquote human concerns through his work. As an example of this, uh, the 2004 album Chasm, not Chasm, as I <laughs> am dum-dum in thought. Um, I just don't come across the word chasm often, so when you see it, you're like, oh. Interesting. <laughs> I'm always talking when we're walking on the street. I always go watch that. Um, so we'll chasm. just uh, take a left and we'll watch that chasm. And yeah, I always say that too. So my bad. Which uh, good joke that album? Good joke I made. <laughs> that album includes songs written about like the aftermath of 9/11. Songs containing anti-war sentiment and so on. So very. A second one was living concerns. in New York uh, at that point. So, Absolutely. Yeah. We can next look to Saturn square Uranus as the push and pull between Saturn's rational grounded qualities and the more rebellious and progressive aspects of Uranus. Rounding this out, Sun in Capricorn acts as Sakamoto's practical or realistic, like classical pianist side, as we've mentioned, making a sign-based square to Mars in Libra, which would represent the fierce musical auteur side of Sakamoto. Picking up on some of Jeremy's points, this nature versus human or industrialization relationship also exists in Lawrence. For one, the film scores the natural, primitive Indonesian landscape with asynchronous, upbeat, almost romantic synthesizers and drum machines. Again, like not perfectly fitting on top. It's more like a pasting uh, than a harmonious yeah. blending. But that's the thing uh, as well. Japan occupied Java. Like neither yeah. neither enemy nor ally really belong there. That's not their Absolutely. land, right? It's, it's um, they're foreigners. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it works. This landscape, to kind of push it further, beautiful, lush landscape is marked by soldiers armed with weapons made by humans and inflicting violence atop of harmless Mother Earth, who's a, you know, a pacifist in this whole scene. Yeah. We understand that in the context of the film, like humans do not exist outside of nature. It is because of nature that humans can exist and thrive and industrialize as we have, but amongst and against uh, bringing it, like... Abuse it, yeah. It, it, and that dichotomy that we're seeing with the soldiers and the landscape, it just 
helps bring attention to one and the other. So a little like uh, how Don't Look Up didn't really do that when we watched it last night when <laughs> no. it was too overt and it, that the yeah. message is uh, hitting you on the head with a hammer and then you end up being exhausted by it and you don't take anything from it. Very interesting. Very interesting. layered argument about it. I know. Yes. Merry Christmas, Mr. <laughs> Lawrence is working on many layers um, and many different levels. Unlike new movies lately. I know. So. Subtlety. Subtlety works. Goes a long way. Goes a long way. Anyway, shall we wrap up? Do you have anything else you want to say? Yeah, we can wrap up this uh, and then then we can just discuss Last Emperor for one minute and 55 seconds and then whatever. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, we watched The Last Emperor. He makes, um, he contributes to the score and the score wins the Oscar that year. Totally. With David Byrne. It's, uh, I didn't really go as far as seeing which was contributed to the other. You could kind of tell what was made by Sakamoto, I think just by like our. Uh, familiarity with it but well watching coda too it's like yeah he was asked to be part of the movie uh and he did not intend to be doing any of the music and then was asked to do the music and then was asked to do more and more and more of the music to the point right, where he 40 had more to, pieces within two days or exactly so, like so he was yeah. like writing it in a hotel room uh and then flew down and immediately was recording it again never intending to be to do this when he was first asked to do the yeah. film and then i think the Either the director or the producer. Bertolucci got him on on more of them, the Whispering Sky or whatever it's called, the Sign Sky. Exactly. And then for a a particular piece, had said, I don't like that opening, rewrite it. And he had to rewrite it within 30 minutes while the orchestra was sitting in front of him. And I don't think it's for Last Emperor. Oh, no, it might be. Oh, yeah, Yeah, because it's when they are in. Like the uh, ballroom? They're in Maturia. Oh, gotcha. And. yeah, during the ballroom, and it's sort of the with Sakamoto with the camera, like and that the scene? emperor's there. Yes, yeah, yeah I yeah, love yeah. that too. So anyway, yeah, it's it's um, he never meant to do the music, basically, <laughs> and yeah. then he won an Oscar for it, which and, is great. Uh, I know, right? Yeah, because um, he's that good. And so, yeah, just to skim over the movie, yeah, the most telling scene I find is um, when the emperor has stolen something from one of the guards. Do you know what I'm talking about? Really early on, when he's a kid. And he's running around with his brother and they're all chasing each other in a circle. Yeah. And it's just that. Yeah, it's just yeah. sort of this like. Oh, um, it's when he's wearing the yellow and he's like, you're not the emperor. That whole <laughs> I think thing. so. Takes, <laughs> I don't know. And it's, uh, and this happens twice or three times. There's um, a visual indicator of a circle. Yeah. And it's sort of the society eating itself from within, which is literally done by sort of like the rations uh, and the budget. And they're seeing how much is being taken away by all the guards of the emperor and um, it's the Forbidden City. For all of this context, it's just the last emperor of China before it goes to um, like a republic. the Democratic Republic under mm-hmm. communism and everything like that. Um, and they're just trying to preserve. Oh, and then when he and he asks about, uh, he wants to do a audit of all their like resources, and then all the guards or something just destroy the destroy all the food. Yeah. So anyway. I think score-wise, like we said. <laughs> yeah, back to Sakamoto. Yeah, yeah, back to Sakamoto. Um, it's, a gr- it's a great movie. I recommend watching it. Uh, it obviously won many awards, so it's a very celebrated film. It's the best film. picture winner. Yeah. It's the best picture winner, so it definitely wouldn't be um, a waste of your time. Score-wise, um, obviously, <laughs> Sakamoto's going for very different things from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which He's not the like, sole credit, too, so again, it's he's tough not the to sole see, credit, like, yeah. But it's a very... Like, it's a more traditional score. It still has his Sakamoto influences, but it's, like, all orchestral. It's not um, a pop. Exactly. Soundtrack. It's not, like, electro pop, right? (laughs) 
that's true. I know. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're seeing it's, a different set of version of Sakamoto, and that's kind of what, um, like, paints his his personal work, even outside of um, the the film work he's done, where it's this back and forth between, again, like we've said a couple of times now, those classical influences, that classical stylings, you know, Bach influence, which I know he's still heavily influenced by Bach Debussy, uh, versus like Yellow Magic Orchestra Sakamoto, who's just all about... Well, well, yeah, <laughs> Mr. Lawrence is much closer. Mr. Lawrence is much closer to his Yellow Magic Orchestra right. music, which makes sense because he's still there. That's like their last year when they're active. Yeah. Um, in their first bout, they they kind of re- reunite and, and uh, tour. Um, you know, they return from a hiatus. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, he, you know, if I can go so far as like he kind of reminds me of a Johnny Greenwood. You know, yeah. he has his main totally. projects. He has his solo work. He has his film work. And they're both very trained in their respective things. They can both be a rock star, yep. pop star, mm-hmm. um, and then they can go and, you know, whip out crazy Oscar-winning, yeah. string-oriented, very sweeping, grand, uh, mm-hmm. though Greenwood is, like, much more um, polarizing in his scores. They're not as, you know, he's not doing something like The Last Emperor, which is much more classical Hollywood. and For sure. Um, vague and, and opulent. I know. You know? Um, which works with it because it's sort of like the score itself is probably trying to preserve some part of the old Hollywood and those types of scores. Um, and again, it's just, it, it's right there in the chart and it's right there in the work that he chooses itself. You know, Mr. Lawrence is about, is much more forward facing, absolutely, uh, in terms of like what it's, it's, it's going for. Well, and like- the last emperor is so much more sort of this like dinosaur of old Hollywood, uh, Bertolucci totally. like makes interesting films, of course, and I love The Conformist. But this is later on, um, not later on his career. It's you know eighties. He's still younger, but um, it feels like you know everyone's speaking English. Yeah, right. And I right? thought that was an interesting choice for <laughs> no. A, it's a an cast. American stereotype. Well, for a cast like, that all probably speak some like for the cast that all of their it's English is second language, right? Like, yeah. Set in China, it's like, what? It, and yes. that's what's like, like, as Sakamoto's score kind of stuck out in Mr. Lawrence, what stuck out in Last Emperor was everyone speaking English, where Ugh, you're like, I know, what is happening? Like, it would make no. sense if, um, oh, the teacher, whose name is escaping me, was speaking English with the emperor, obviously, but past that, anyways. But yeah, and something like we see in Coda is um, Sakamoto just whipping out oh, Peter O'Toole yeah Peter, Peter O'Toole. O'Toole Sakamoto just whipping out scores like absolutely just flying through writing these notes on like a blank uh sheet of <laughs> like a blank score yeah. essentially versus she music she music versus you know electronic oriented Sakamoto also seen in Koto where he's yeah, just you're like right. yeah, yeah. whipping out his little like he's got his Pro Tools set up doing all the <laughs> like <laughs> violin bow on like gong stuff yeah. like that two sides of the same man is like so fascinating I think like with Mr. Lawrence it's like the Neptune forward Libra kind of feel and then in Last Emperor it's very Saturnian very classic Hollywood as you said so he fits comfortably into both worlds, you totally know. And it's does. not like it's super conscious or something. I think you know, it's just that no. he's that talented and that he has a great appreciation for both sides of it. So Absolutely. it's cool to see someone you know blend both. Yeah. What's interesting about like watching him work, um, you know, of which we've only seen a small glimpse, is that 
the way he makes music, he almost thinks like, well, this isn't something I created. This is something that, you know, was already created. But he's I'm an like, adventurer. He discovers sounds, right? And, and he's so happy with the, the sounds. That, part, yeah. Exactly. So happy with the sounds that he is making, but he is not involving himself in that. He's like, this is an amazing sound. It's not like I made this amazing sound. It's almost like he exists he's separately. Yeah. He's like a vehicle for for his work. So anyways, very interesting. <laughs> As part of that nature, yeah. good boy. Very humble Capricorn it, yeah. boy. Yeah, with uh, with all of the above, Sakamoto, as we've seen, is certainly not a man that fits within a single mold. Uh, I'll draw your attention to just one more astrological alignment that I think is kind of interesting. But Jupiter is opposing Saturn, which in my mind represents the true binaries in, you know, our planetary uh, universe. There are no two planets, in my opinion, that are more connected due to their complete oppositeness in relation to one another. So Jupiter is expansion and Saturn is contraction. However, we also have Uranus making a square to both planets, so that's creating like a T-square, signifying that this binary relationship between Jupiter and Saturn can actually be used, can actually be used as a tool for innovation, specifically in music. So when these binaries merge, Jupiter and Saturn, something new and unique is left in its place. Mercury is opposite from Uranus, which signifies the communicative communicative (laughs) nature of Sakamoto's work and the vehicle through which he chooses to dissolve these binary relationships, AKA through his music. So bringing it all back to that cross shape we mentioned early in the episode, but from everything we've said, or I guess from my perspective on just what I'm seeing in the chart, it's that blending of what you'd expect to be, you know, very, uh, is dichotomous a word, but like just polar opposites and what asynchronous, makes, you know, async, you know, and what makes his work so word, right? unique and so special is the fact that he can so harmoniously blend these two different sides of himself and these two different, um, you know, types of musical creative journeys. That's it that I have. He's a coolie. He's, He's very inspiring. So cool. I think, you know, uh, we always like to take on elements of the people that we work on and then it, um, informs the episode and the tone and the mood and our interests and, and yeah. our own inspirations. And like to study his work is um, really invigorating and uh, refreshing. Yeah. And someone who's um, realistic and still tries and still fights for it, you know, still making important work. And um, still remains so grounded in his beliefs yeah. and his like anti-nuclear activism, but can still remain so positive in the face of all of it, I think is like, awesome to see as well and it's never about him doing the thing it's more about the cause itself it's more you know yeah humble humble such a great word for it so such a coolie uh we really liked it uh this ends our you know musical uh trilogy for now uh, as we looked at you know musicians first then their film performances afterwards uh and it was a great diversion because uh directors can get a little boring (laughs) after a while (laughs) they're all like yeah (laughs) they're all kind of the same Right. They're all very similar. Uh, well, it's like I, there's like, yeah. there's a lot of personality in their work, but there's less personality that you can find in the director themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. They're not on screen, right? Yeah, not, right? not often. So um, anyway, uh, stay tuned for Noah Bomback, which is going to be next month. Uh, we're going to be bringing out a lot of uh, fun stuff for it. Holy, that's March, isn't it? Yes. It's not February yet when go? we're recording. Where does but the time go? Who knows where the time goes? Well, stay safe, everyone. We love you all. Thank you for listening. 
And uh, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.